Well, good afternoon. Let me remind you that uh, we do have a children's ministry, and if your child who is between the ages of three and seven, if you'd like for them to participate in that ministry, you can take them to the back of the hall at this point in time, and their teachers will meet them and take them to their room. So that's children ages three to seven, and they'll hear uh, or participate in a lesson that is uh, about the passage that we're about to look at in the book of John. So I encourage you to take advantage of that if you think it will be a benefit to your children. This week, every time I turned on my computer and went to a Western news site, splashed across all of the pages was news about a very um, salacious, okay, that means like very gossipy, trial, courtroom trial that was happening in the United States. It's all about an actor named Johnny Depp, you may know him, and an actress, Amber Heard. And there were, on every one of those news websites, there were experts being interviewed who analyze all the witnesses when they come to the stand, and especially Miss Heard, as she testified and cried in front of the courtroom, and was she telling the truth? Was that fake crying? She is an actress after all. Things like that. Let me just tell you that I didn't read much further than the headlines. I feel like I'm kind of walking into someone's bedroom or something. Uh, It just seems not right for me to know about all those gossipy things that are going on, but courtroom dramas draw people's attention. It's no wonder that courtroom trials are, of course, the subject of some of the most gripping movies that have ever been made. And the passage that we're continuing in this week is really a passage that is a courtroom trial. We're entering back into the middle of it. We started it last week. In that courtroom trial is Jesus and the Jews. The Jews are essentially putting Jesus on trial Because in the end, but in the end, he turns the tables on them. And it's them who are being accused by Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospels, the four Gospels, are basically the authorized biographies of Jesus' life. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, they are the first four books of the New Testament. The Bible's divided up into an Old Testament, everything that happened, God creating and forming the nation of Israel, leading up to then the life of Jesus that begins the New Testament, and what happened after Jesus' death and resurrection, the formation of the church. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're looking at chapter 5, verses 31 through 47, 31 through 47. Follow along with me as I read. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, 
and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come from my fathers in my father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, you're our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. I think that what Jesus wants to hear in all that he's taught in that passage that I just read is this message. Believe Christ's witnesses and beware barriers to belief. Believe Christ's witnesses and beware barriers to belief. We're going to walk through this passage, these words of Jesus, we're going to see three witnesses that Jesus presents to the Jews. We could possibly even see a fourth, but then we'll look at that fourth, which can be uh, a transition verse for us, and see then three warnings of Jesus. So three witnesses and three warnings of Jesus. Now we're still in a section of John's gospel account that, of course, if you'll remember at the beginning of John chapter 5, began with Jesus' healing of a paralyzed man. He had been paralyzed for 38 years, and he lay beside this pool, the, a pool of Bethesda, and Jesus picked him out of the crowd and told him to pick up his mat and walk, and he did, miraculously. But it was on the Sabbath day. And the Jews who heard of it and saw this man walking with his mat accused the man, and then when they found out who told him to get up and walk, accused Jesus of working on a day that God, in his word, forbade work. God had forbidden the Jews to work on the Sabbath day. They confronted Jesus about that what they saw as a violation of God's commands. 
And Jesus had an answer. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. But rather than reassure them that a Sabbath command hadn't been violated, Jesus' answer was nothing short of blasphemy. It was worse. And so things escalated. Jesus wasn't only defending his Sabbath work, but he had gone farther, and he was claiming to be equal with God. That's what they understood. And so they were wanting to kill him all the more because he's gone farther. He's gone farther than just working on the Sabbath. What we began considering last week was Jesus' defense of his controversial actions and statements. And in his defense, he begins by telling them that he does only what he sees the Father doing. The Father raises the dead, Jesus says, and the Son will also give life to whom He chooses to. Jesus is defending the fact that He is God with the Father. He gives life, even eternal life, to all who believe His words. We saw that in verse 24 of chapter 5. And it will be Jesus who will judge at the end of time on the great day of judgment. He says that the Father has given him the right to judge. That's only a right that God himself has. Again, he's asserting his divinity. Like in a courtroom, Jesus is representing himself and has made his opening statements. And now it's time to call the witnesses who will back up his claim. In those first two verses of our text today, verses 31 and 32, Jesus makes a statement that at first seems a little shocking. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And I'll go on and read 32 again. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, when Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying that when he says something about himself, it's false. That doesn't make sense. We know that everything Jesus says is true. He only speaks truth. Rather, with this statement, Jesus seems to be referring to Jewish legal law that required two or more witnesses. And that's recorded as a law in Deuteronomy 19.15. I'm I'm going to let you look that up later yourself. In that, it says that you need two or more witnesses in a court of law to accuse someone. But Jesus is going to do better than two. And so then he introduces the witnesses. He makes it clear in 31 and 32 that the one who is orchestrating all these witnesses of him Their testimony to him is really the Father. The Father is behind it all. He's ultimately the one who's bearing witness about Jesus, his son. And so now Jesus calls three. Again, we could even argue perhaps four witnesses that he calls to give testimony about his divinity. The witnesses are the first three points of the sermon today. And so first to the witness stand is John the Baptist. John the Baptist's witness. That's the first point this afternoon. We read how John announced, of course, back in 
chapter 1 of John's gospel, that Jesus was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John said about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. John knew his place in God's plan. It was to introduce Jesus to the Jewish nation, to go before him and point to him, not to himself. Interestingly, Jesus says in verse 34 that he doesn't really need the testimony of John the Baptist in order to be recognized as the Son of God. And that's true. People should have been able to recognize that Jesus was God simply from his own words. Jesus said that he said those things, though, so that you may be saved. John the Baptist was just a man, and God the Son doesn't need man's testimony to validate who he is. But God is so patient, he's so kind, and he knows how much sin and how blinded we are to the truth by our sin that he's provided in our lives, in the lives of those Jews as well, extra witnesses. You know, I think probably in your life, before you became a Christian, Jesus provided many witnesses to his divinity and the fact that he's the only one who saves. I don't know if you could think back in your life to all the people who spoke the gospel to you, all the people who perhaps reasoned with you about Jesus and believing in Him. All of those people were a kindness of the Lord sent into your life to lead you to saving faith. We thank the Lord that He's kind and generous to send all these witnesses to us. God's sending of John the Baptist before Jesus was because He wants His people to recognize Jesus for who He really is and was. The evidences and testimonies to Jesus' identity are there because of God's love and kindness. God could judge us all and be totally and completely justified without having sent witnesses into our lives. But God is love. And He has sent prophet after prophet to the Jewish people, witness after witness to them, and witness after witness to us as well to open our eyes to the forgiveness that we could have in Jesus if we would only repent of our sin and trust in Him. Jesus even refers to John the Baptist as a burning and shining lamp that the Jews could rejoice in for a while. With this phrase, Jesus seems to be referring to the words of a psalm, Psalm 132, verse 17, which says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Jesus is the anointed. John the Baptist is the lamp. John the Baptist's testimony was like a bright lamp shining on the true light of the world, Christ himself. Over the last 2,000 years, of course, the Lord has multiplied the number of sacrificial witnesses to Jesus' lordship. I say sacrificial because we know that John the Baptist was beheaded because of his witness to Jesus. And even at this point in John's gospel, it's likely, because Jesus is speaking about John in the past tense, that John has already been executed for his witness. 
Perhaps you've heard of the English bishop Hugh Latimer who refused to abandon the true gospel and because of it was burned at the stake for it. As he stood tied to the stake ready for the fire to be lit beneath his feet, he turned to Nicholas Ridney, Ridley who was tied up next to him and who also was refusing to deny Jesus and the gospel. And he said to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. What faith. What willingness to be a sacrificial witness to Jesus. To think that his burning body would be the shining lamp on Jesus. Oh, that we would be as faithful witnesses to Christ as men like Ridley and Latimer are. And we know, brothers and sisters, don't we, that all over the world since that time, people in most every country around the world, there have been faithful, sacrificial witnesses to Jesus. And many of them, because of many of them, people have come to faith. We may not be burned at the stake or beheaded like John the Baptist, but will we be bold even in the face of just simple ridicule in the workplace or scorn or being made fun of because we're Christians? The next witness that Jesus calls is the miracles. The miracles, that's the second point this afternoon. We see that in verse 36. Jesus refers to them here as His works. He says it's His testimony. They're also called, of course, signs in the book of John. And we can count as many as seven. There was water into wine in chapter 2 of John, and that showed us the Messiah ushering in the good gifts of God in the Messianic age. There was the healing of the official son at the end of chapter 4, and that showed Jesus' power to restore life. There was the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool at the beginning of our chapter here in 5, and that showed Jesus' power to make the leap, the lame leap for joy. Those are the ones we've studied so far, but we're going to see just in the next chapter, Jesus feeding the 5,000 with bread that he multiplies from just a few loaves and shows that he is the bread of life. There will be walking on water, showing that he's the one who created everything and he has power over it. There'll be the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, showing that Jesus not only opens physical eyes, but he opens spiritual eyes as well. And then, perhaps his greatest miracle, the one that comes before his miracle pinnacle where he himself is raised from the dead is the raising of Lazarus from the dead where he shows that he is the one who can conquer death. All of these of Jesus' miracles were meant not only to demonstrate God's compassion and mercy for us, his people, but they were to literally be signs. They were to point to Jesus' divinity. They were to cause people to look beyond the miraculous to the miracle worker. You know, it's like all those billboards on Sheikh Zayed Road. 
Those billboards aren't there just so that you look at the billboard and say, wow, what an amazing billboard. We're not meant to marvel at the sign itself, but to get the message of the sign. When you see that giant portrait of Sheikh Zayed on Sheikh Zayed Road, you're not meant to be amazed at the sign itself. You're supposed to think about the founder of this country and to think about all he did. To be amazed at him and not the sign. It's the same with Jesus' miracles. They scream at us, Jesus is God, believe in him. And these seven signs that we're going to read about in the book of John, they were just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed the sick and cast out demons. These were just the signs that John chose to tell us about in his gospel account. There were so many more. Jesus made the lame walk. He made the blind see. He made the mute speak. The sheer number of miracles that the Bible records Jesus performing rules out the possibility that these accounts were simply illusions believed in by ignorant and gullible people. No, no. Listen to what the miracles are saying in the witness stand, so to speak. Jesus has the power of God because Jesus is God. That's what they say. The third witness that Jesus calls to the stand is the Father Himself. That's the third point this afternoon, the Father Himself. And we see Jesus referring to the Father Himself in verses 37 and 38. Jesus wants us to hear the Father's witness to the Son and believe in Him. Look at verses 37 and 38 again with me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom He has sent. And when Jesus refers to the voice of God that they'd not heard, He's probably referring to when the Father spoke at His baptism as Jesus was coming up out of the water. You may remember that God said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It was audible. Another time when God the Father audibly spoke was at Jesus' transfiguration when he was on the mountain with the disciples, the three disciples. There he said something similar as at, at Jesus' baptism. He, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him because they weren't listening to him at the time. But perhaps what is most interesting about the Father's witness to the Son is what Jesus mentions in verse 38. He's spoken about the Father's voice, but then he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. He uses a different Greek word. It likely refers to the first one, or excuse me, the second one to God's voice as we hear it in Scripture. And now that would make sense given that Jesus is about to turn to the subject of Scripture in the very next verse. Jesus is saying that if you really had God's Word living in you, taking up residence in you, such that you lived by it, you were guided by it, you 
looked to obey it day in and day out, that you would recognize in my voice the Father's voice and you would believe in me. But you don't, Jesus says. You don't. Because you don't have his word abiding in you. Psalm 119.11 comes to mind as we think about this accusation of Jesus against the Jews. I don't know if you remember it. You'll probably be familiar with this verse. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you know that verse? It's a great verse. The Jews certainly had God's word in their heads. They knew it. They could recite it. They could navigate their way around the, what we call the Old Testament, which was their scriptures, with ease and with speed. But having it in your head is not the same as having it in your heart. Having it stored up in your heart is motivated by a desire to obey it and strengthen your faith in God. You put it in there so that you can walk through your days pleasing your Father in heaven. The Jews had mastered Scripture, but God's desire was that they let Scripture master them. Do you go to Scripture to master it or to let it master you? To conquer it or to let it conquer you? Are you letting God's Word take that what seems like a long journey from your head to your heart every time you open up God's Word? Brothers and sisters, let's read and listen to God's Word with the intention to let it take up residence in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. God's Word has that kind of power. It can strengthen us in the fight against sin. You know, sometimes we can open God's Word and we end up reading it, but really not listening to it. I know I've done that myself. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. When that happens, it's like we're uninterested teenagers looking off in the distance while our parents lecture us. We're not really listening. We hear the words, but we're not really listening. Oh, Lord, help us to hide your word in our hearts one way we can work toward letting God's Word abide in us, of course, is to literally put it in our minds so that it's always there. We can try to memorize it. And I, I must confess that this is something that I, I want to grow in. I want to grow in memorizing God's Word. I've gone through phases in my walk with Christ where I sometimes I memorized more. I'd like to do that better. Some of you, I know, are memorizing Scripture, and I'm sure you're reaping the benefits of it spiritually. Desiring God Ministries has an app that you can download and put on your phone called Fighter Verses. <laughs> there, it's there to help you memorize Scripture so that you, it helps you fight to walk with Christ every day. Another way that we can try to make sure that we're letting God's Word truly abide in us is to combine Scripture reading with heartfelt prayer about that scripture. Sometimes our 
quiet times or our daily devotions can be academic if we just open up and read and close the Bible and move on to whatever comes next. But if we pray, then we're actually entering into a back-and-forth conversation with God. We're listening to Him in His Word, and we're speaking to Him in prayer. When you finish reading, I encourage you, talk to God in prayer about what you've read. Prayer is your opportunity to reply to God, to engage Him in conversation after He's spoken to you in Scripture. Practice this, of course, with one another. God is meant to live in us and to lead us to faith in His Son through His abiding Word. So there are three witnesses that we've covered that Jesus has called to the stand, so to speak. John the Baptist, Jesus' own miracles, and the Father Himself endorsing the Son. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that in John's Gospel, Jesus' speeches seem to run in circles, don't they? They kind of loop back on themselves. It can be hard to follow sometimes. And the next section of verses, beginning with verse 39, corresponds to Jesus' warnings to beware the barriers to believing in Him. But we can look at verse, verses 38 and 39, and we could consider them as part of the witnesses section, or we could look at them as beginning the warnings section. I'm going to include it in the warnings section. So from verses 39 to the end of the chapter in verse 47, there are at least three warnings from Jesus. You see, of course, the Jews have accused Jesus, and now Jesus begins to accuse them. The first of the three barriers to belief that they should beware of is missing Scripture's witness. Missing Scripture's witness. That's the fourth point this afternoon. You can see that in verses 39 and 40. This happens to be one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 39. The Jews loved to study Scripture. Why? Jesus tells us here, because you think that in them you have eternal life. One famous Jewish interpreter said that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. But Jesus is telling them that they're not hearing what the whole of the Scriptures is saying to them. They're reading the words, but they're not getting the message. Scripture, all of Scripture, is a witness to Jesus. And the Jews weren't hearing it, and so they've refused to come to Jesus to get life. He's the one who gives eternal life, not the Scriptures themselves. I don't know if you remember, but at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's walking along the road to a town called Emmaus, and he encounters two discouraged disciples, and they don't they're kept from recognizing who Jesus is, and they're amazed that Jesus hasn't heard about what's happened in Jerusalem, and then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures 
the things concerning himself. Jesus talked to them about, it says here, all of the Old Testament and how it was about him. They got basically an extended sermon with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And his texts were the whole Old Testament. Oftentimes when we think about the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, we think only of the verses that directly predict a Messiah coming. And so you may think of verses like, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah 9, you may remember, when we read this oftentimes at Christmas time, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wow, this is a verse that is predicting Jesus the Messiah. A son will be born and he'll be called Mighty God? That's Jesus. And there are a number of verses like that in the Old Testament, but that's not what the entirety of the Old Testament is like. There's more than just direct prophecies that point to Jesus. What we see in the Old Testament is that everything is leading up to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus not in a direct way, but sometimes in an indirect way. So, for example, there are important institutions in the Old Testament, like the temple or the tabernacle, and they point to Jesus because that was the place where the Jews went to worship God. They were commanded, well, now that Jesus has come, He is the person to which Jews and all people are to go to worship the Father. So in that sense, the temple and the tabernacle point to Jesus. Or maybe it's the priesthood as we look back in the Old Testament, the series of priests who were mediators between God and man. But you see, every one of those priests died. But here has come in Jesus the great high priest who has not died who lives forever and will forever intercede for us and has made a sacrifice just like those Old Testament priests made with bulls and goats' blood. This priest has made a sacrifice with his own blood. Do you see how it's pointing to Jesus? The kings, both good and bad, bad because it makes us long for a good king and the good kings because they make us long for an even better king. And Jesus became that king. The wisdom of the Psalms, the Proverbs, and Job, for instance, they point us to the one who is wisdom in the flesh. Everything he said was wisdom. And all the promises in the Old Testament. Take, for example, the promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All those promises, including that one, are fulfilled in Jesus. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the Scripture is speaking about God's plan of redemption from sin through the coming of the Messiah. But they wouldn't listen to the Scriptures. Are you? Do you see Jesus in all of the Scriptures? If you come to Covenant Hope Church and you hear us preach from the Old Testament, you're going to hear about Jesus. You're going to hear about Jesus every week you come to Covenant Hope Church. 
You're going to see how Jesus is in the Old Testament. I encourage you to come back next week when Pastor Mark Donald is going to begin preaching in the minor prophet of Micah. He's going to talk about Jesus next week. There was a man who was born in the late 1800s, lived into the 20th century. His name was Emile Rio. He was an English classical scholar who translated and published many classical literary works for modern readers. He translated things like Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad. You may be familiar with those works, even if you haven't read them, you've heard those names. And he was not a, he was not a Christian. But then at one point in his career, he was charged with translating the four Gospels. When his son heard that he was embarking on this translation project, he said about his father, it's going to be interesting to see what father will make of the four Gospels, and it will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of my father. Emile Ryu came to faith as he translated the Gospels. He saw that Jesus was the Son of God, and he put his faith in him. Just this past week, I was, uh, well, excuse me, this happened actually while I was back in the U.S. a few weeks ago, um, and um, someone popped up on Facebook Messenger. It happened to be uh, a man who was uh, attending for a number of years UCCD church that meets in the room right next to us, and I'd had uh, a little bit of a conversations with him over the years. He now lives outside the country. His name is James. And in those conversations with him, I came to find out that he's not a believer. He was not a member of UCCD. And we had good conversations about why he was not a believer. He didn't believe the Bible. He thought it had too many mistakes in it, too many errors, too many ethical commands that offended him. And so when we started this Facebook Messenger conversation just in recent weeks, I said, I remember, James, that you said you're not a Christian. He said, oh, you remember well, Pastor Brian. And so we started talking again about what the reasons were that he didn't believe in Jesus. And we went around and around about the same kinds of things, and I reasoned with him, I pointed him to the Scriptures, I tried to explain to him that, no, they point to Jesus, they are true, they are good. And in the end, I said, but James, all these conversations about what you think are discrepancies in God's Word aside, what will you do when you face Jesus? You will have to face Him. And you are passing judgment on His Word. Oh, brother, you are in great danger. I pray for James, that he would see that all the Scriptures point to Jesus. All the Scriptures point to Jesus, and if you miss that point, it's like standing in front of a window that looks out on a, a beautiful ocean vista, but all you want to look at is the window frame. That ocean vista, of course, is the beautiful message of redemption, the message that though we are sinners, just like Adam and Eve, we've disobeyed against God, and we deserve His punishment. Eternal wrath is what we deserve. 
But God in His great love and mercy, this holy God, sent His Son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life and to hang on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, taking the wrath of God on Himself. And then He rose again from the dead, showing that He has eternal life to distribute to whoever will repent of their sin and trust in Him. That is the big message of the Bible. That is the beautiful ocean vista that the Scriptures show us. Do you believe it? Do you believe Him? The first barrier to belief in Jesus was these Jews focus on the Scriptures but not the true message of the Scripture. And the second barrier to their belief was that they sought man's praise or seeking man's praise, we can say, rather than God's praise. We see that in verses 41 through 44. Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from only God? When Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people, he's telling them that he doesn't need their praise. Of course, they should have fallen on their knees and worshiped Jesus right then and there. <laughs> he deserves their praise but he doesn't need it. It doesn't validate who he is in his own eyes. Our praise of God doesn't add to his glory. Did you know that? Jesus didn't create us so that he would get more glory necessarily. He had all the glory he needed before he even lifted a finger, so to speak, and created the heavens and the earth. They should have received Him for who He really was, but they rejected Him. He came in His Father's name. He told, John has told us in chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. What's keeping them from receiving Him? Well, it's because they're seeking man's praise. They want to look good in front of each other. They want to please one another more than they want to please God. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the Pharisees? Do you remember that? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And he went on to criticize them. He criticized the fact that they were giving publicly, making a big show of it, dropping their money in the offering bucket, so to speak, so that everyone would see them and be impressed with them. He criticized them because they were praying on the street corners in really loud and flamboyant ways just so that everyone would hear them and think they're very religious. He criticized them for fasting in a way such that it attracted attention to them so that people thought, oh, they're so dedicated. Living for the praise of other people will be a barrier to true belief in Christ, and it will be a barrier as well even if you've put your faith in Christ, it will become a barrier to you being able to obey Christ because you'll be 
pushed about by the whims and the desires and the praise of people around you. Beware seeking the praise of men. Now, brothers and sisters, it's not wrong to serve another person, for example, in the church, and have them say, thank you, I'm so grateful that you've loved me in this way. That's wonderful. You've done that, perhaps, to honor God, whether they thank you or not. But that's the test, isn't it? (laughs) If they don't thank you, if they don't appreciate it, do you keep loving them because you want to please God rather than men? It's a good question. The last barrier to belief that Jesus warns them of is rejecting Scripture's authors. And we see that in verses 44, excuse me, 45 through 47. Jesus comes to the close of His defense, and He shocks His accusers by telling them that it's not Himself that's currently accusing Him or will accuse Him in the future. He says, do not think that I'm going to accuse you to the Father. There is one who does accuse you, Moses. Well, Moses was their main man. It seems appropriate that Jesus was wrapping up His response to these hostile Jews by calling another witness not to defend himself, but who would accuse the Jews, Moses. You'll remember that the Jews were considering Moses' writings on the Sabbath when they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. Well, now Jesus is saying, actually, Moses is going to accuse you. Jesus has turned it around on them, and He tells them that Moses doesn't agree with them. Moses agrees with me. Moses believed in me even though he didn't know my name, Jesus. Moses accuses them in the sense that he wrote about Jesus, and they don't see it. They disbelieve Moses' writings, Jesus tells them. Jesus is probably here thinking about some specific passages, one of which is Deuteronomy 18. Joanne read that to us earlier in the service. Carson will teach us at the prayer meeting tonight from Deuteronomy 18. So if you want to hear a little bit more about that, you should come and hear. Let me just select a couple of verses back out of Deuteronomy 18 again. He says, Moses says, or actually God is saying through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What God is saying when he says, I will require it it, it of him, is that he is required to understand and believe the words of the prophet that I'm going to send, or else he'll be under judgment. Later in chapter 7, John records some in the crowd saying of Jesus, this really is the prophet they were speaking about the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is that prophet like Moses, only greater that God sent. And rejecting the words of the prophet Jesus have great consequences. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome here. And I hope that you see in these passages, in the very words of Jesus, the danger that these Jews were in for rejecting Jesus. They sought man's praise instead of God's. 
They missed the message of the Scriptures, and they hung their hopes on Moses when Moses actually pointed to Jesus. Are you, are you in danger of letting any of these barriers prevent you from receiving the Lord Jesus? Beware, beware, my friend. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have even more witnesses than those that Jesus has called on His behalf in this passage. We have the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has given to all who trust in Him. We have the whole New Testament, the testimony and interpretation of Jesus' teachings and His life, which the apostles wrote down for us. We can listen to Christ's words and see His miracles in the pages of the Gospels. Witness after witness after witness testifies to Jesus, the only Son of the living God. Oh, friends, believe Christ's witnesses and beware the barriers to belief in Him. Eternal life is what's at stake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for sending Christ into the world. We praise You for the accounts that we have, the fact that we can read Jesus' very words and we can see Him performing these miracles in the pages of the Gospels. Oh, Lord, I pray that if there are any here, any here who are letting these barriers prevent them from trust in You, I pray that You'd remove the barriers. Give them the gift of sight. Give them the gift of faith in Your Son, Jesus. And for those of us who've trusted in Your Son, Jesus, oh, Lord, strengthen our faith in Him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Jesus is ours because we've trusted in Him. Let's sing about that.